0: Good day, and thank you for standing by. Welcome to the Gilead Fourth Quarter and Full Year 2021 Earnings Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star 0. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Jackie Ross, VP of Investor Relations. Please go ahead.
1: Thank you, Gigi, and good afternoon, everyone.
0: Just after market closed today,
1: we issued a press release with earnings results for the fourth quarter and full year 2021. The press release, slides, and supplementary data are available on the Investors section of our website at Gilead.com. The speakers on today's call will be our Chairman and Chief Executive Officer, Daniel O'Day our Chief Commercial Officer, Joanna Mercier, our Chief Medical Officer, Murdad Parsi, and our Chief Financial Officer, Andrew Dickinson. After that, we'll open up the call to Q&A, where the team will be joined by Christy Shaw, the Chief Executive Officer of PITE. Before we get started, let me remind you that we will be making forward-looking statements, including those related to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on Gilead's business, financial condition, and results of operations, plans and expectations with respect to products, product candidates, corporate strategy, business and operations, financial projections, and the use of capital, and 2022 financial guidance. All of these involve certain assumptions, risks, and uncertainties that are beyond our control and could cause actual results to differ materially from these statements. A description of these risks can be found in the earnings press release and our latest SEC disclosure documents. All forward-looking statements are based on information currently available to Gilead, and Gilead assumes no obligation to update any such forward-looking statements. Non-GAAP financial measures will be used to help you understand the company's underlying business performance. The GAAP to non-GAAP reconciliations are provided in the earnings press release available on the Gilead website. With that, I'll turn the call over to Dan.
2: Thank you, Jackie, and good afternoon, everybody. As we head into 2022, Gilead's coming off a year of positive clinical momentum and strong financial performance, mitigating the impact of the pandemic on some parts of our business. Higher sales of Vic more than offset the impact of COVID-19 on HIV and HCV. Vic continues to play a critical role in helping to treat people with COVID-19 with continued activity against the Omicron variant. The FDA recently expanded its use beyond the hospital for patients at high risk of disease progression. In addition, we just initiated a Phase 1 trial of GS-5245, a novel oral COVID-19 nucleoside, that once metabolized works in the same way as remdesivir. Our full-year revenue for 2021 was 11% higher than the midpoint of our initial guidance in February of 2021. It was also an important year for our transformation to becoming a business that is based on diverse, sustainable growth. In 2021, we received seven approvals or accelerated approvals in the U.S. and Europe and submitted an additional six filings. Our approvals included three for Tribelvi with the FDA and MA approval in second-line triple-negative breast cancer, as well as an accelerated approval from FDA for metastatic bladder cancer, two for cell therapy, with Yescarta receiving accelerated approval in relapsed or refractory follicular lymphoma and Tecartus receiving full approval in adult acute lymphoblastic leukemia and two expanded labels in virology one for a pediatric label for Victarvy in the US and an expanded label for Viclury in the EU for adults not requiring supplemental oxygen our 2022 plans include a significant increase in clinical development studies across our novel oncology portfolio we are planning at least 20 additional t- trials, including 7 phase 3 for, uh, trials for Tridelvi. And these include the Ascent 3 trial, which is evaluating Trodelvi in the frontline triple A breast cancer in the PD-L1 negative population. The Ascent 4 trial, in collaboration with Mark, to evaluate Trodelvi and Cotruda in the frontline triple negative breast cancer, uh, population in the PD-L1 positive population and the EVOKE-3 trial, which will be led by Merck to evaluate Trodelvian Petruda, and in non-small-cell lung cancer. You will also see ongoing momentum in our virology portfolio as we continue to expand our leadership in antiviral therapies. We are advancing our longer-acting HIV options with Lenacapavir as the foundation and look forward to potential regulatory decisions in 2022. If approved, lenacapavir would be the only HIV treatment option administered twice yearly. In addition, we'll continue to drive progress across our broader virology portfolio, including hepatitis, COVID-19, and other emerging viruses. This is a really important time in Gilead's transformation journey. After the consistent work to execute on our strategy and expand our portfolio over the last two years, we will increasingly start to see this play out in tangible results. We're confident that Gilead has all the elements in place for a strong year and a strong decade. Joanna, Merdad, and Andy will now take you through the details of our progress and our plans. And let me hand first over to Joanna to talk about our commercial performance in the fourth quarter and the full year, and I'll be back to you in the Q&A. Joanna?
3: Thanks, Dan. Good afternoon, everyone. As you can see on slide seven, we had a strong end to the year with Q4 total product sales, excluding Biclory of 5.8 billion, up 7% quarter over quarter, driven by favorable pricing and inventory dynamics. This also represented 8% growth year over year, driven by continued recovery in the HIV treatment market and favorable pricing dynamics. Biclory sales were higher than expected in Q4, reflecting the start of the Omicron surge, but lower than both the prior quarter and prior year, and contributing to total product sales of $7.2 billion for the quarter. Moving to slide eight, total fourth-quarter Vicolari sales were at $1.4 billion, bringing total sales for 2021 to $5.6 billion. Gilead is proud of the role that Vicolari continues to play in this pandemic. Vicolari has demonstrated activity against the Omicron variant and has helped many patients with COVID-19 in the most recent surge. Although symptoms have generally been less severe, the volume of overall cases has meaningfully increased since the emergence of Omicron, and we have seen the total number of hospitalizations increase as well. While we would all prefer to put this pandemic behind us, we expect the to continue to play a critical role in 22 and beyond. As you'd expect, hospitalizations remain a key indicator for inpatient delivery sales, and we're seeing higher hospitalizations in geographies with lower vaccination adoption, including certain parts of the U.S., as well as Eastern Europe. Additionally, I'm very pleased to highlight that the FDA recently approved the SMDA filing for the use of Vicklery in the outpatient setting for patients at high risk of disease progression. This approval was based on data generated in the Phase three Pine Tree Study, further solidifying the credibility, importance, and role of Vicklery. Now, Viclery will be able to help even more patients earlier and reduce risk of hospitalization for COVID-19. Next, as shown on slide 9, Total HIV sales were 4.5 billion in the quarter, up 8% sequentially driven by favorable inventory and pricing dynamics, as well as changes to our gross to net estimates in Q4 2021. For the full year, total HIV sales were 16.3 billion, down 4% year over year, primarily due to the Trivada and Atripla LOE, in addition to pandemic-related impacts and pricing dynamics. The expected impacts from the LOEs, which amounted to 1.3 billion, was offset by continued BICTARV growth. Excluding the sizable LOE impact, HIV total product sales for the full year grew 4% compared to 2020, despite the ongoing pandemic headwinds. We now expect the Trivada and Tripla loss of exclusivity impact to be minimal going forward as the headwind dissipates starting in Q2 of this year. In HIV treatment, We continue to see signs of market recovery, although the U.S. market declined 1% sequentially in Q4, following two quarters of sequential growth. On a year-over-year basis, the overall market in Q4 was up 1.5% in both the U.S. as well as EU5, despite screening and diagnosis rates still below pre-pandemic levels. As you know, favorable dynamics play out in the fourth quarter of every year in HIV, and 2021 was no different with some year-end inventory stocking and favorable seasonal pricing, as well as changes in our gross to net estimates in Q4 2021. As you think about 2022, I'll remind you of the normal HIV inventory buildup in Q4 and the new year reset for patient copays and donut hole payments. Given these factors, along with the favorable pricing dynamics I just mentioned, we expect the sequential decline in q 22 to be greater than q 21. Nonetheless, we expect a strong year overall in HIV and expect continued growth in sub- subsequent quarters. Back to Q4. Victarvi had another record quarter with sales of $2.5 billion, up 11% sequentially and 22% year-over-year. On slide 10, you can see that Victarvi U.S. treatment market share has increased over five share points in 2021, reaching 42% which is the highest share that any complete regimen has ever achieved in this market. For the full year, Bitarvi sales were $8.6 billion, growing 19% from 2020, and Bitarvi remains the leading prescribed treatment for naive and switch patients in the U.S., as well as number one in naive in the EU5. Discovi revenue for the fourth quarter was $473 million, up 9% quarter-over-quarter, primarily as a result of favorable seasonal pricing and inventory dynamics, as well as continued demand. We expect Discovy revenue to continue to be driven by PrEP as Discovy has maintained about 45% of overall PrEP market prescriptions in the U.S. We'll continue to ensure access to support physician choice and expect growing demand and market expansion to offset the impact of increased commercial contracting. Overall, while near-term growth continues to be impacted by local pandemic-related social restrictions, we're encouraged by the growing PrEP market. In Q4, the overall PrEP market grew 4% quarter-over-quarter and 31% year-over-year. Looking forward, we believe Lenacapavir, our investigational longer-acting PrEP offering, could potentially catalyze this market well beyond the 25% penetration rate in PrEP that we see today. Moving to slide 11, it's clear that HCV continues to be part of our portfolio most impacted by the pandemic. Although there was some slight quarter-over-quarter recovery market starts in the EU5, U.S. market starts declined resulting in flat total starts overall. While Gilead market share increased modestly on a sequential basis in both the US and the EU, this was more than offset by unfavorable pricing dynamics, resulting in Q4 total sales of 393 million, down 8% sequentially and 7% year-over-year. As you can see on slide 12, our HBB and HDB franchise reported record quarterly revenues of 265 million, up 7% sequentially due to seasonal inventory and favorable pricing. The 9% year-over-year growth was primarily driven by then Liddy demand. Total fiscal year sales for this franchise were 969 million, up 13% year-over-year. Hepcludex reported 12 million of sales in Q4 in Europe, with 37 million and 21 sales since our acquisition in late first quarter. Hepcludex is currently available in Germany and France in addition to a number of early access programs in countries such as Austria, Italy, and Greece. In 2022, and as part of our comprehensive commercialization plan, we expect finalized reimbursement for launch in a number of major European markets. In the U.S., we filed a BLA in November and FDA granted priority review for accelerated approval with a PDUFA date set for the third quarter, as well as an advisory committee meeting that will be scheduled in the coming months. Moving to oncology, first with Trigalvi on slide 13, Global sales were $118 million in the fourth quarter, up 17% sequentially, and up 84% year-over-year compared to full Q4 2020 sales. This reflects growing adoption of the second-line metastatic TNBC indication, which was noted as a preferred regimen and the NCCN breast guidelines updated in September. We're also starting to see stronger, unaided brand awareness, which is resulting in continued market share growth. In second-line TNBC, Tridelby now captures approximately one in four new starts in the U.S. We've expanded our oncology footprint globally, including tripling our U.S. headcount to further accelerate penetration of Tridelby and prepare for our potential HR positive and HER2 negative launches. Additionally, EU approval for Tridelby was granted in late November 2021, and we've already seen strong momentum in France and Germany since their launch. We plan to launch a number of new countries following key reimbursement decisions this year. Now on slide 14, on behalf of Christy and the KITE team, Cell therapy Q4 sales of 239 million reflected 47% year-over-year growth and 8% increase sequentially. For the quarter, Yaskardis sales of 182 million were up 41% year-over-year, driven by continued demand in relapse or refractory large B-cell lymphoma and follicular lymphoma. Tecartus sales of 57 million in the quarter reflected 68% year-over-year growth based on growing global demand for relapsed or refractory mantle cell lymphoma and early con- contribution for adult acute lymphoblastic leukemia in the U.S. As a reminder, FDA granted cardis approval in adult ALL in October. In, in just the first few months of launch, there has already been strong demand that we expect to continue in the coming quarters, given the high unmet need. Full-year cell therapy sales of 871 million reflected 43% year-over-year growth driven by continued LBCL and MCL demand globally, as well as the new launches. The strong growth we've seen with these recent launches reinforces our belief that cell therapy adoption will continue its positive momentum as more physicians understand the benefits for appropriate patients and therefore increase referral rates to treatment centers. Murad will elaborate later, so I'll just quickly mention the impressive data Kite presented at ASH in December. 43% overall survival rate after five years in third line LBCL patients. The Yaskarta data at Ash not only highlighted the long term real world safety and efficacy profile in third line LBCL, but also in earlier lines of therapy. For Zuma seven data in second line LBCL, FDA has set up to do the date of April first when we hope Yescarta will be granted approval. In the meantime, the Kite team is ramping up manufacturing capacity to meet the anticipated demand. Kite expects the new Maryland facility to begin commercial operations by Q two. Con- Combined with the Amsterdam and El Secundo facilities, we expect increased operational capacity by up to 50% by the end of this year. Christy is here with the team and available to take questions on cell therapy during our Q&A. In closing, our oncology sales were $1.25 billion in 2021, and we expect robust growth in the coming years. And so with that, I'll hand it over to Murdad for pipeline updates.
4: Thanks, John, and Good afternoon, everyone. Building on what both both Johanna and Dan have said, the Gilead team rounded out a very strong 2021 with further progress across our portfolio. In 2021 alone, we began enrolling patients in 13 oncology, 13 virology, and four inflammation trials. And we have recently shared the initial details of the ambitious development programs we're targeting for 2022. As we look forward, we're confident that we have the foundation to continue to build a robust, diverse portfolio across our three focused therapeutic areas. First, on slide 16, the CLURY continues to play a vital role in the fight against COVID-19. The CLURY was the first approved treatment for patients hospitalized with COVID-19, and we recently expanded indication labels in the U.S. and the E.U. In December, the European Commission approved a variation to the conditional marketing uh, authorization for the Clury for the treatment of COVID-19 in adults, not on supplemental oxygen. And last month, based on the data from the Phase 3 pine tree study, the FDA expanded the approval of VicLurie to include non-hospitalized patients at high risk for COVID-19 disease progression. These expanded indications speak to the activity of VicLurie against the coronavirus variants we've seen so far, including Omicron. We believe there will continue to be a need for VicLurie delivered intravenously, especially for higher-risk patients. The potential for continued COVID-19 variants and infections highlight the need for more convenient oral formulations to expand the options for outpatients. As such, we've just initiated a phase one trial of GS-5245, a novel oral COVID-19 nucleoside that once metabolized works in the same way as remdesivir. Pending data, the evolving pandemic landscape, and discussions with regulatory agencies, we're hoping to initiate a registrational trial before the end of the year. Moving to HIV on slide 17, we shared an overview of some of our long-acting development activities a few weeks ago to highlight the diversity of our portfolio and how it targets the entire HIV life cycle. We continue to believe that our investigational agent, Lena Cavavir, is a unique and foundational asset, given its potential for extended dosing in addition to the compelling efficacy and safety profile highlighted in the Capella and Calibrate studies. Next, on slide 18, you can see our current clinical efforts with long-acting HIV therapeutics. As previously announced, the phase two study evaluating the oral combination of lenacapavir with Merck's islatrovir is on partial clinical hold and Merck remains in discussions with the FDA on next steps for islatravir. In the meantime, we at Gilead continue to develop a number of other potential partner agents for lenacapivir in HIV treatment and look forward to sharing some more detail on these programs at our virology deep dive later this month. Remain confident and excited about lenacapavir's future potential to deliver options for people living with HIV or those who could benefit from PrEP. I want to be very clear that the recent clinical hold for the lenacapavir trials, which the FDA initiated in December, is not associated with the lenacapavir molecule itself. Rather, the hold reflects concern about the compatibility of certain vials with the lenacapavir solution. We continue to work with the FDA to remediate the concern and to agree on a path to resume these trials. We're hopeful this can be achieved quickly. As such, we continue to expect an FDA decision for lenacapavir and heavily-treatment experienced individuals in the first half of 2022. If successful, lenacapavir will become the first available six-month long-acting subcutaneous injection for the treatment of HIV. Next, moving to Tridelvi on slide 18, I'm pleased to confirm that we now expect to share both top-line progression-free survival data as well as the first planned interim analysis of our overall survival from Tropics O2 in March. There's been a convergence of events for PFS and OS, such that we'll be able to conduct and report a single analysis of these outcomes, rather than have two analyses separated by a short interval. Gilead remains blinded to the data, and we're excited to be able to share this more complete view later this quarter. We are targeting an SBLA filing in the second half of 2022, depending, of course, on the readout. If the data are positive, we believe that Tridelby could represent a very important treatment option for HR positive HER2 negative patients who are hormone refractory and have very limited options. Reflecting our confidence in trodelvi overall, we're expanding the number of clinical programs in 2022 to evaluate effectiveness in breast, lung, and bladder cancers, with plans to initiate study startup activities for at least seven phase three trials. Three of these are expected to enroll their first patients in 2022, including two in frontline metastatic TNBC and another in frontline non-small cell lung cancer studies that will be led by Merck. Going forward, we will separately disclose trial startup activities versus FPI milestones. Additionally, in the first half of this year, we plan to add a combination of Tradelvi with other Gilead portfolio assets as a study or an additional cohort in, a, in an existing study. We look forward to sharing more details at our upcoming oncology deep dive in April. This is another example of the versatility and tremendous potential that Tredelvi, along with the growing oncology portfolio, can generate. Next slide, on to Magrolimab. Early last week, the FDA placed a partial clinical hold pausing enrollment and screening in trials and cohorts in the U.S., evaluating grolimab in combination with azacitidine following a review of a preliminary data set suggesting an apparent imbalance in investigator-reported SUSARS or unexpected, uh, sorry, suspected unexpected serious adverse reactions between treatment groups in our ongoing Phase 3 trial in high-risk MDS. A subsequent partial clinical hold has been placed on the Phase 2 multiple myeloma study and the fully enrolled Phase 2 DLDCL study. Importantly, patients currently enrolled in our Magrolomab studies can continue treatment, and our compassionate use programs remain open. We're working with the FDA to take a comprehensive look at the safety data, and we'll share the outcome as quickly as we can. In the meantime, we remain committed to the Megrolimab development program and believe that it has the potential to address an important unmet medical need in these seriously ill patients. As you know, the patients in our enhanced Phase 3 trial have a very high unmet need with a median overall survival of only one to three years on the current standard of care. Separate from and prior to the partial clinical hold, our Phase 1B single arm study in high-risk MDS no longer has a viable path to submission based on regulatory feedback. As such, we'll remain focused on our Phase 3 enhanced study and look forward to sharing the 1B data at an upcoming scientific meeting. Next, moving to cell therapy on slide 21. On behalf of Christy and the kite team, I'll share a brief update on the impressive data kite presented at ASH last December. First, as you may recall, in 2020, we shared that Yescarta had a four-year overall survival rate of 44% in third-line LBCL patients. At ASH in December, we presented five-year data from Zuma-1 in third-line LBCL patients showing Yescarta demonstrated a remarkable and durable 43% overall survival rate, stable since our four-year update. Additionally, Ninety-two percent of the patients who remained alive at five years have not needed any additional cancer treatment since their one-time infusion of Yescarta. It's truly inspiring to see this type of durability for CAR T-cell therapies. As announced yesterday, the FDA approved a label update for Yescarta to include use of prophylactic corticosteroids across all approved indications. Adding prophylactic steroid use can improve the management of certain side effects without compromising the activity of Yescarta. For example, the FDA label now shows no grade 3 or greater cytokine release syndrome events occurred using the cohort 6 protocol as compared to 13% in the original label. This label update complements data published in 2021 showing 68% of patients had no CRS or neurological events within 72 hours of the Ascard infusion. As we look to earlier lines of treatment, the landmark Zuma 7 trial evaluating Yaskarta in second line relapsed refractory LBCL demonstrated a greater than fourfold increase in median event-free survival, or EFS, compared to standard of care through two years of follow-up. As you can see on the slide, the EFS curve for Yaskarta is compelling. The SBLA was filed last quarter, and we expect an FDA decision by April of this year. In terms of the first-line LBCL data, Yescarta demonstrated 89% overall response rate in high-risk patients and 78% complete response with a median follow-up of 15.9 months. Given these encouraging data, the kite team is in discussions with regulatory authorities on a potential path forward in frontline LBCL. And finally, on slide 22, we highlight the key 2022 catalysts across the portfolio, many of which I've just mentioned. I'd also like to take a moment to highlight the three ARCIS milestones in the second half of this year. Last quarter, Gilead opted into the three ARCIS programs, which added four assets to our portfolio. Dombanilumab, an FC-silent anti-Tigid antibody, AB308, an FC-active anti-Tigid antibody, a trumadenant, an adenosine receptor antagonist, and quimliclislat, a small molecule CD73 inhibitor. Together with Arcus, we expect to share ARK7 Phase 2 PFS data in the second half of 2022, which will include data for the Zimborelamab monotherapy, Zim and Dom doublet, as well as the Zim, Dom, and Etruma triplet arm. We look forward to sharing data when available, and are very excited to collaborate more closely with Arcus to accelerate future development plans. On slide 23, you can see that Gilead's portfolio now encompasses 55 clinical stage programs, nearly doubling since 2019. Given the exciting potential of our portfolio across virology, oncology, and early-stage inflammation assets, this is just the beginning. Our teams are committed to advancing the most promising programs that will help transform patient outcomes, and we look forward to sharing our progress with you over the coming quarters and years. With that, I'll hand it over to Andy.
5: Thank you, Murdad, and good afternoon, everyone. It was a strong close to 2021, driven primarily by strong HIV and Vecluri revenue in the fourth quarter. For the full year, and excluding the impact of the LOEs, HIV grew 4% year-over-year, driven by the continued outperformance of BICTARV, which achieved record U.S. market share of 42% and sales of $8.6 billion, up 19% from 2020. Oncology was another highlight from both a pipeline and a revenue perspective, with full-year cell therapy sales of $871 million, growing 43% from 2020, and Tredelvi sales of $380 million in its first full year. By 2030, we anticipate our oncology franchise will represent at least a third of our total revenue. Before I get into the normal P&L review and 2022 guidance, I want to address the EPS results for this quarter up front. Slide 25 highlights two sizable expenses that occurred after we gave our last guidance update in October. First, and subsequent to the exercise of Gilead's opt-in to four ARCIS assets in December, our fourth quarter results reflect a net charge of $625 million recorded in R&D. This charge reflects our $725 million option payment recognized in Q4, less $100 million that was previously accrued. This impacted our EPS by about 38 cents in Q4 and for the full year. Second, and as part of a legal settlement with Veve and related parties, we have agreed to make a one-time $1.25 billion payment in addition to an ongoing 3% royalty for future sales of Big Parvey and the bactegravir component of any bactegravir-containing products in the United States. This growth extends until October 5 of 2027. The $1.25 billion payment is recorded in our fourth quarter results and reflected in our cost of goods sold. This charge constituted an approximately 17% impact, the gross margin in the fourth quarter, and it impacted our EPS by 80 cents for Q4 2021 and the full year. Going forward, we expect the impact of this new royalty to be approximately 1% on our gross margin starting in the first quarter of 2022. Excluding these items and their combined $1.18 impact, our full-year non-GAAP EPS would have exceeded the guidance range that we set back in October, helped by stronger-than-expected victory sales. Moving back to our quarterly review on slide 26, Fourth-quarter revenue in our base business included HIV product sales growth of 7% year-over-year and 8% sequentially. The glory sales were higher than expected due to the start of the Omicron surge. Non-GAAP product gross margin was 70.5%, impacted by the legal settlement that I referenced earlier, and non-GAAP R&D was impacted by the ARCUS opt-in, resulting in non-GAAP EPS of $0.69 cents per share. Our non-GAAP effective tax rate for the fourth quarter was 32.2%. Reflecting tax expense related to uncertain tax positions and an increase in valuation allowance, as well as the impact of discrete tax benefits related to legal settlements with tax authorities in 2020 that did not recover this year. For the full year, on slide 27, total product sales of 27 billion grew 11% driven by Vecluri. Excluding Vecluri, total product sales were roughly flat at 21.4 billion as growth in Vicparvi and Oncology offset the $1.3 billion impact of the Truvada and A-Triple-LOEs in the United States. I touched on the main P&L impacts in the fourth quarter discussion, but I'll highlight that our non-GAAP effective tax rate for 2021 was 20.4%, despite the higher effective tax rate in the fourth quarter. Moving now to slide 28, our 2022 guidance assumes that the recent Omicron surge represents the only major COVID-19 wave for 2022, And that our HIV business will continue to recover from the pandemic. With that in mind, we expect product sales in the range of 23.8 to 24.3 billion dollars. Excluding Veclery, we expect product sales in the range of 21.8 to 22.3 billion dollars, representing growth of 2 to 4% for our base business year over year. Relative to Q1, I'll remind you to expect HIV revenue to decline sequentially. This is a normal dynamic for HIV due to inventory and seasonal pricing impacts, and you'll recall that last year HIV revenue declined 14% sequentially in Q1-21 from Q4 of 2020. For Q1-22, we expect a larger sequential decline given the favorable Q4-21 changes uh, to growth to net estimates that Joanna mentioned earlier. Nonetheless, we expect a strong year overall for our HIV business and continued growth in the subsequent quarters. Looking beyond Q1, we expect the impact of the Truvada and AAA LOEs will be largely behind us starting in Q2, and we look forward to accelerating growth in our HIV business during the remainder of the year. For the full year 2022, we expect Veclurie sales of approximately $2 $2 billion. This assumes, as I previously indicated, that Omicron will represent the only major surge for the year, with Veclurie revenue heavily weighted in the first quarter. That said, the pandemic continues continues to be dynamic. And we will update you on our vocabulary expectations on a quarterly basis, consistent with our recent practice. Moving to the rest of the P&L, we expect our non-GAAP product gross margin to be approximately 85 to 86 percent, consistent with our historic guidance and allowing for the 3 percent royalty associated with the legal settlement. For non-GAAP operating expenses, we expect R&D to decline or to decrease by a mid-single-digit percentage compared to 2021 levels, This decline is driven by the net $625 million charge related to the ARCUS opt-in in in the fourth quarter of 2021. Excluding this, we expect full-year R&D expense to increase by mid-to-high single-digit percentage compared to 2021 levels. We expect SG&A expense to be approximately flat on a dollar basis compared to 2021. Our non-GAAP effective tax rate is expected to be approximately 20% this year, Finally, we expect our non-GAAP diluted EPS to be between $6.20 and $6.70 for the full year, and GAAP diluted EPS to be between $4.70 and $5.20. On capital allocation, our priorities have not changed. We continue to invest in our business while at the same time we returned over $4 billion in 2021 to our shareholders through dividends and share repurchases. In addition, we repaid $4.7 billion of debt in 2021. For 2022, we plan to repay $1.5 billion of debt, of which we repaid $500 million this morning. With that, I will invite the operator to begin the Q&A. Thank you.
0: As a reminder, to ask a question, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. We ask that you please limit yourself to one question, and if you have a follow-up, you may re-enter the queue. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Our first question comes from the line of Jet Meacham from Bank of America. Your line is now open.
5: Okay, great. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, good afternoon, and thanks for the question. Uh, Dan or Andy, uh, maybe a higher-level strategic question. I wanted to, to ask about your comment regarding long-term oncology sales, and and the question is, are, are you comfortable with the aggregate, you know, assets in the portfolio? Do you think you'll need to be more aggressive on BDE, um either to drive more near-term growth um, or looking longer-term uh, to have, you know, higher-impact assets? Thank you very much.
2: Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for the question and team and up. I'll start and then hand it over to Andy. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean th- – th- the, the the guide that we gave at J P Morgan was that we are confident in our ability to, to 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 grow and to also have oncology by 2030 be at least a third of our overall revenue on top of a um, a solid H uh, I V uh, business and virology business overall. I, I think the answer to the question, Jeff, is we believe we have everything in house to be able to fulfill on that commitment today. I mean, the number of options that we have with Tradelvi, with Magrolomab, with the Arcus assets, and with cell therapy uh, as a, from an oncology base provides tremendous opportunity for us to look alone and in combination at that portfolio um, in, in the coming years. And that, that specifically uh, leads to the more than 30 clinical trials we have ongoing right now in our oncology portfolio. And our guide that this year will start at least another 20, uh, in the oncology space. So, uh, it really that's, that's the armamentarium behind our, our commitment and our growth. Of course we'll continue to be opportunistic around business development and look for supplemental options out there that can complement this portfolio as, as a course of, of normal business as, as any healthy company should. Uh, having said that, we really do have enough in-house to be able to fulfill upon that that commitment. So, with that, Andy, I may have stolen all your thunder, but I'm sure you'll add some additional yeah, some additional you. perspectives. Please. Yeah,
5: Jeff, thank you for the question. Um, I think it's it's an important question, especially in the context of the and Mab clinical hold that um, uh, may be underpinning the question specifically. But the answer is relatively simple. We have a very strong set of assets already. The guidance that we provided to J.P. Morgan does not actually include all of the assets or all the indications for all the assets. So there's a lot of ways for us to get there. We have complete confidence in where we're going, and we don't expect to change our BD strategy as a result of any of the recent developments. We're actually really excited about where we are. And there's a lot of upside to that if other assets, whether it's some of the earlier Arcus assets or the Cizona or Pioneer assets um, as examples, um, provide additional options for patients. So when you talk about high-impact assets, I would just summarize by saying, we already think that we have a great portfolio of high-impact assets in oncology. We're incredibly pleased with what we've put together, and nothing that's happened recently has changed that in, in any way. So thanks for the question.
2: Thanks.
0: Thank the next question. Our, our next question comes from the line of Mohit Bonzal from Wells Fargo. Your line is now up in.
6: Great. Thanks for taking my question, and, and
4: good afternoon. Uh, maybe a question for Murdad. Uh uh, so in the light of new data that are emerging in her HR-positive and HER2-negative breast cancer, uh, do you have any updated thoughts on how to think about overall survival uh, in the treatment and control arm for tropics 2 vis uh, vis-à-vis uh, uh, the expectation or, or the assumptions in clinical trials, which are, I think, if I'm not mistaken, 12 months for the control and 16 and a half months for the treatment? So how should we think about OS? Thank you. Thanks, Marie. Yeah, Directly over to you, Merdane. Yeah, thanks, Moheeb. It's a it's a great question, and um, I think as as I mentioned in my call, I think we're excited that we're we're going to be able to share the first interim analysis from the OS as well um, when we do the the readout here for the TFS. So I do think we'll look at both at the same time. You're absolutely right um, that um, there are. Um, developments in the HR-positive space, but I, I continue to believe, and I think, um, uh, you know, I think that the impact on both PFS, on PFS in particular here, but also OS, uh, continues to be. I think if we see something in the ballpark of what you just described, we, we're confident that that remains incredibly clinically relevant for um, people suffering with uh, with HR-positive HER2-negative. Um, it is as you state, uh, uh, an increasingly competitive uh, area. But we do think that that, that remains a, a key milestone for uh, for patients if we can achieve that.
7: Thank you. Thank we'll
0: you. Our next question comes from the line of Corey Kassimbo from J.P. Morgan. Your line is now open.
5: Hey good afternoon guys. thank you for taking my question I uh, wanted to follow up as well on the on the tropics o two study and, and maybe Merde can you talk about how you see the the potential significance of this convergence of events that you alluded to when thinking about both progression free survival and overall survival? did you see any implications from this or is this kind of you know, moving along the lines as you would have expected it to thank you
4: yeah great question and thanks for asking it. um I, I i think I'm very reassured i would not read anything you know into this uh, other than the fact that we've been as you can imagine keeping track of the p f s events and the o s events all along and um you know we've we've uh we've now um, gotten to the point where those o s events have have occurred in a in a in a time frame that allows us to look at both of these events at the same time. I don't think it really says anything about – I think what you're getting at is does it have any, any implications for the underlying, you know, yes. positive or negative or anything like that. And I really, I really don't think there's any way to interpret that right now. It would be pure speculation to think that there's some, you know, some underlying driver of bringing those endpoints together. And actually, it's not that unexpected. It's a little bit closer in than we thought it would be, but not, not, not by that much. So I wouldn't read too much into it. I'm just excited we'll be able to do it it'll be a more robust look. And I think, as I've said before, we think the regulators are going to want to see those robust looks at the at the OS to help them um, with, uh, you know, sort of, in a sense, supporting the PFS endpoint.
2: Thanks, uh, Corey. Uh, can we have the next question, please?
0: Our next question comes from the line of Brian Abrams from RBC Capital Markets. Your line is now open.
6: Hey, guys. Thanks so much for taking my question. I um, wanted to better understand uh, the potential signals from magrolimab. Uh I think you guys have said that you haven't observed any clear AE trend. Uh, i curious, where's the disconnect versus what the FDA and investigator concerns are here? Um, and maybe talk a little bit about the potential path to resolution, what additional safety data uh, would be needed, and your level of confidence uh, you will reach a resolution.
4: Thanks. That's great. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Corey. Yeah, I think um, so. Look, I think I think the way to think about it is, um, you know, some of the, there have been a couple of events that you know the agency wants to make sure that they have a chance to look at the overall uh, overall safety profile. Um, I remain blinded to the to the safety data. So what is going on is we are. Um, gathering the safety data, and we're going to share it with the FDA and with the uh, the data monitoring committee. Um, I can tell you that you know we we feel that these are temporary challenges right now, that and we're going to work through resolving it as quickly as possible. Um, you know, I don't think these challenges really shake our confidence for for the portfolio overall, and our overall strategy hasn't changed. We're really committed to the to the magRA development program, and we think that um, it really continues to have the potential to really address an un- un- an important unmet medical need um, The other thing I'd add is you know remember these are very generally pretty sick patients and and with that underlying illness, I think it's appropriate to be cautious and make sure that we're we're striking the right balance as we go forward but we'll we'll work through it by looking at the overall um, safety um, at the overall safety um, profile, uh, Brian, and, and make sure that we are um, are able to uh, resolve those issues with the FDA.
2: And Brian, we'll keep you informed as that evolves. We have obviously a lot of patients on on Megrolumab that continue to be served by amount so we have a sense of urgency in working with the agency around this. Thank you very much, Brian. Mm-hmm. Can we have the next question, please.
0: Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of
7: Salvine Richter from Goldman Sachs. Your line is now open. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my question. You referred to the Arcus portfolio. Can you just comment on what you're most excited about outside of TIGIT and and when you might start the, the triplet study?
2: Sure, Murdab, why don't you start on that?
4: Sure, uh, you know, I think, uh, in addition to the TIGIT asset, as you know, the, the, um, adenosine portfolio, if you will, the two molecules, the two, um, inhibitors of adenosine, both in terms of the synthesis inhibitor, CD73, as well as the receptor blocker, um, are, are really interesting to us. They're, they're early programs, but, um, we think that there is a real potential for those, uh, assets to provide um significant upside to, uh, to treatment, both in terms of where, um uh, in lung cancer, where we think, uh, you know, there, there's some, uh, the, the trial that's ongoing that will, is looking at the addition of, um, uh, adenosine inhibition to TIGIT plus PD1, as well as in some of the indications that Arcus is evaluating is with, uh, monotherapy, in particular pancreatic cancer. So I think, for us, there are a number of opportunities there, and the potent, the broad potential of the adenosine inhibitors to add on to immuno-oncology in general and, and TIGIT plus PD-1 in particular um, really strike us as a really uh, great opportunity that, that hopefully, as the data mature, we'll, uh, we'll be able to share more and, and really uh, underpin the, the optimism we have around where those programs are headed.
2: Right, and I think there was a question
4: on when to start. Uh, to oh, and then the triplet study. Yeah, we we'll, we'll, we haven't announced that yet. We we need to work through um, uh, some details. Thanks for reminding me, Dan. We're working through some um, uh, approach. Really, the question here for us is how to go from um, the uh, the doublet, where we're really looking at a Tigid inhibitor being um, an unapproved agent, right? Uh, and then potentially bringing in a second um, uh, unapproved agent. So we have to work through, in a sense, the, the regulatory complications of how we have to um, sequence and stage those studies to allow us to assess the contribution of components such that we can um, move forward aggressively. So we're working really closely with our adenosine, colleague, you know, our adenosine colleagues, our ARCIS colleagues, <laughs> Um, and we'll, we'll, um, we'll work through the regulatory pathways to make sure that we can get to robust phase, phase three trials with those. So, um as we do so, we'll, we'll certainly share, um the, the timing and the pathway.
2: And Salveen, so the only thing I'd add on top of Murdad's very eloquent response is the potential to combine the, this, the subtractive portfolio from Arcus with other, uh, medicines that we have within Gilead, including Tridelvy and possibly Magrolimab and others. So the combination of having access to a PD-1, two tissue compounds, two adenosine combined with Trodelvi provides a rich opportunity to look at rational-based combinations, and we'll be getting more into that uh, as we do a deeper dive in oncology as a starting point in, in April, and then obviously throughout the year we'll continue to update you on that. Uh, and it's one of the major reasons why opting and early was important to us, because we could work really fluidly now across a very rich portfolio. Um, and uh, with the uh, additional uh, expertise and colleagues from Arcus, it it, it uh, really expands all of our potential in clinical science and beyond. Thanks, Alvin, for the question. Can we have the next question, please?
0: Our next question comes from the line of Michael Yee from Jefferies. Your line is now open. Uh, hey,
6: thanks. Uh, thanks for the question. Appreciate it. Um Maybe back to Murdad on Tradelvi appreciating that, You know, I know there's a lot of focus on on this interim OS. I would love to give you the opportunity to perhaps, you know, frame expectations at an interim. Uh, You know, interims have different connotations, and there's different interims at different percent of events that have accrued. So could you just explain what percent of events this interim is based on? Do you actually expect to hit stat SIG? Or are you just expecting a trend of a few months? Maybe just uh, talk to that a bit, um, because I think there's different implications of just an interim.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, yes. Michael. And maybe uh, just a suggestion, as you, as you answered Michael's specific question, it might be helpful for the whole audience to, to hear again kind of your overall view of, of you know, the, the, the potential success of the yeah. indication. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
4: yeah. Michael, it's a great question, and I think uh, thank you for asking it. So um, as a reminder, you know, I think um, for, from a PFS standpoint, the primary endpoint of the study, we believe we're, we're really well-powered uh, to detect uh, a difference there. Um, the, and as I'll remind folks, we did redesign this study a year ago in order to power uh, the study adequately for OS as well. Um, I would, um, I think as excited as I am that we, that, uh, that we will be able to report out that first interim analysis, Michael, you're absolutely right on that. Um I would not expect statistical significance at this first interim uh, because it is relatively early in the in the um, in the time frame uh, you know that that we're seeing. So uh, my expectation is that um, you know again, pending a positive outcome that we are well powered to see a, um, a PFS improvement at a statistically significant level. and the OS will be supportive data at that point that will give us directionality as to where we're headed. And then, um, you know, hopefully subsequent uh, to that as the uh, events accrue, um, we'll, we'll see where we're headed with OS and um, uh, down the road. It's a great question. Thanks, Michael. Uh, can we have the next question, please?
7: Our next
0: question goes in the line of Ronnie Gal from Bernstein. Your line is now open.
6: Good afternoon and thank you for taking my question. Uh, switching over to talk a little about Yaskarta, um, can we us if there's already impact uh, on the use of your scar in second line, or is this still ahead of us? And you've mentioned you're increasing your capacity by 50%. Are you currently capacity constrained or demand constrained? Essentially, will all that demand be used if it comes online?
2: Yeah. Thanks, Ronnie. And, and uh, as I turn it over to Christy, let me just say how um, uh, you know how how many patients we've been able to impact with cell therapy in 2021, and, and that being just the beginning, of, I think, of our promise for the future. We certainly invested in the manufacturing capacity to anticipate demand and success in the second line, and Christy can go into the details with you. Christy, over to you.
7: Thanks, uh, Dan. Thanks for the question. Yeah, we're very excited about um, not only the second line, uh, which is the uh, most important and the most patients, but the continued success of third line plus with the five-year data that was presented at ASH, where Year four, you saw 43% of patients still alive and at uh, 44% of patients still alive at four years and 43% at, at five years, which I think you heard my dad say. So based on um, those as well as new indications uh, coming out, we're really seeing an increase in demand. Our capacity, um, uh, we're well positioned. You know, we have the El Segundo manufacturing site here in California. Amsterdam uh, was approved during uh, COVID and um, was up to uh its capacity by uh, the end of last year. And now we have the Maryland site which will be going online the first half of this year uh, where we'll you'll see our automation as well. So not only increasing capacity, but also the ability to reduce costs. Uh, So um, things are are coming along nicely in terms of uh, our ability to deliver. Um, And and you know we still have that reliability of ninety seven percent success uh when we when we uh give the cells back, which is so critically important to patients. So not a um, capacity issue, you know we had a, a, a transparency a couple of issues last year where we had a scheduling issue where physicians uh, were asking for the exact same slot all at the same time, and uh, we quickly addressed that um, and 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 no longer have that uh, that concern so um, we're uh, we're doing well and preparing for hopefully what we'll see is helping a lot more patients stay alive a lot longer.
2: Thanks so much, Kristi. And overall, Ronnie, we're expecting about a 50% increase in capacity over the course of 2022, so uh, continued investment there. Thanks, Ronnie. Can we have the next question, please?
0: Our next question goes to the line of Colin Burstow from UVS. Your line is now open.
2: Hey, good afternoon.
5: and Thanks for taking the question. Um, on the maybe could you explain why the the multiple myeloma and DLBCL trials are also on hold, given they're not in combination with Ava and, and then just somewhat related to that, the the dollar fifty in acquisition related expenses in the twenty two guide, is there any component of that that's related to the forty seven acquisition? Thanks.
2: Great. So we will have Andy answer the second. Uh, maybe you want to touch base on the first, uh, Murdad uh, also telling about the stage of those two trials. So be yeah.
4: yeah, it's really important uh, to um, – I think this may have um, not been entirely clear. Uh, first of all, I think – look, I think whenever there's a safety question, the agency is going to uh, err on the side of being cautious, and, uh, and so we'll work through with them. Uh, on how to go forward, and, and I agree. In those studies, we are not combining with azacitidine. So, again, I think as we as we share the data and 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 the analyses with the agency, hopefully we can come to resolution sooner than later. Um, uh, and it's important that uh, to note that for the uh, the multiple myeloma study, we actually hadn't really started enrolling patients at that point. So, I think that was one consideration. And by contrast, for the DLBCL study, that study is completely enrolled. So the partial hold there actually doesn't have much of a practical impact on that study because we're going to continue dosing the patients who were already enrolled in that study. So um, uh, you know, I think remember that wh- the way it works is maybe the, uh, the context here, the, the holds are placed on an IND, not on a study by study basis generally. So this was a hold to the IND, and so that that's sort of the the, the context to think about it. Now I'll hand it off to Andy to answer the second part of the question.
5: Sure, hi Colin. I'm not sure that I, I fully understood the question, but what I can tell you is none of the none of the updates that we provided in terms of the one-time fourth quarter expenses, nor none of our 2022 guidance, has anything to do with 47 expenses. So. Um, you and I can maybe talk separately to understand what your question is specifically, but there's nothing related to 47 or the 47 acquisition that was either part of our fourth quarter update, year-end update, or part of the 2022 guide specifically.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Colin. Happy to take that up separately too. So let's go to the next question, please.
0: Our next question comes from the line of Hartash Singh from Oppenheimer. Your line is now open.
6: Um, hey, thank you, everyone. Uh, thanks for the question. Um, this is just a question on the You know, you're starting to get a pretty consistent franchise there. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, you know, COVID-19 is still out there. Um, you know, various experts have indicated, and even some of the companies we cover, we're going from a pandemic to an endemic kind of state over this year into next year. How do you, how do you think of Vic glory, you know, going forward? I know it's difficult to get guidance there, but you've got a year and a half worth of data underneath your belt. You know, how are you thinking of hospitalizations going forward, you know, whether that's through breakthrough infections, you know, or do you see as unvaccinated individuals get less and less that uh, hospitalizations will concomitantly decrease? Any thoughts there? And then assuming the oral program gets approved, how do you see, you know, remdesivir IV and then the oral option uh, working together going forward? And again, thanks for the questions and, and a really nice quote.
2: Thanks, Artash. So, uh, I think Joanna can start with uh, some of the ep- uh, pandemic, to, uh, ep- pandemic, and then um, her dad could also comment a little bit on the forward portfolio, but please, Joanna, sure. what do you?
3: Thanks, Artash, for the question. Um, basically, what we've seen since the very beginning is how the um, glory cells truly track to the hospitalizations, and we've seen that most recently, again, with the Omicron surge. Um, what we did see as well is the fact that um, despite the fact that Omicron seemed to, you um, may be maybe less severe impact. Unfortunately, the number of cases were much greater, and therefore the, just the pure absolute numbers of hospitalizations went up. The um, and so we've tracked every single time, pretty much in line parallel to the hospitalization rates, and we we assume that will continue. We do think the hospitalizations will get impacted by some of the oral compounds, even some of the outpatient use of Vicloride, but also um, neutralizing antibodies, as well as the oral treatments as well, like the PI from Pfizer. And so we do think that'll decrease hospitalizations over time. The one thing we had assumed maybe about a year ago is we really thought the vaccination rates would continue to rise, and they didn't. Um, they, they basically stabilized at around the 60 65% rate. And, and of course, there are variances across the country. So what we've seen is the use of different treatments, as well as the vaccinations, uh, the vaccination rates, are really dictating a little bit um, kind of the hospitalizations and, therefore, the Vicolari usage. And and yet again, in the December-January time frame, we've really seen Vicolari play a critical role here for these hospitalizations, also having to do with the fact that many of the other previous agents that were on the market were no longer um, – we're no longer if, um, effective against the Omicron variant and, and we haven't seen any of that. We've seen um, very strong efficacy with Bicillary, which has also helped that. I think most recently the outpatient data um, that's that just come out in addition to the indication really plays a critical role when there are surges and hospitals are over capacity so that they really can look at outpatient setting with veterinary. Um And we think that'll just kind of play hand in hand. And I would propose as I turn it over to Murdad to address the oral piece of the puzzle, I actually think you need both. I think you need the oral setting. So more, more, um, more players in the oral setting is critical, and you still need hospitalizations because, unfortunately, um, as this, beca- if it does become endemic, I do think you'll see a steady rate of hospitalizations as we go through, and that's where Vic Clary plays a critical role. Meredith.
4: Yeah. Thanks. And I, I guess I, I make two points. The first is. Um, is very early days with the oral program, and so I would I would keep that in mind. We just started phase one, so a lot of things can happen, and and so I would just keep that in mind. Uh, obviously, if things go well, we'll move as, as aggressively as aggressively as possible. And I agree with Johanna. I think that there will always be a role um, for um, both oral and IV therapies. That there will be a um, you know what we're seeing now, I think, in, in, in terms of how folks are approaching it, is that you know as uh, availability of oral therapies becomes broader, they're used relatively early in the, in the course of disease. Many people may progress and or not get treated early enough and end up in the hospital. And at that point, I think that's where that hospitalized or peri-hospitalization, more severe disease is where the role of IV therapies is going to come in and that glory in particular is going to come in. So I don't have too much to add with to what Joanna said, but I do think there will be a role for both in the long run. And, hartage
2: just a, to just
4: a compliment what Joanna
2: and, and Merdad said, I think, you know, we, we clearly see that, you know, as this becomes endemic, that there will be a potentially a need for multiple mechanisms in the outpatient setting. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, approaching it from a polymerase standpoint as well as a protease standpoint, we think could make sense over the long term for resistance patterns. And the last thing I'll say is I think, you know, when we've seen this, whether it's pandemic or endemic, remdesivir is going to firmly uh, trench now as a standard of care in the hospital setting. And so as goes hospitalization, so will go remdesivir over time, and we think that's going to be an important part of our ongoing business and our benefits of patients. Um, with that, thank you. Uh, we'll move on to the next question, please.
0: Our next question comes from the line of Carter Gold. From Barclays, your line is now open.
4: Great. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for taking the question. Um, I wanted to come back to Tridelvi, but um, a little bit more from uh, the commercial and strategic angle, and wanted to, you know, just sort of the decision to triple the sales force at this point ahead of, ahead of Tropics to um, is that decision dependent upon, uh, you know, positive data from Tropics 2, or could that potentially be revisited, uh, depending on that outcome? And then specifically around sort of what you're seeing in, in, in with the sales, it seems like the, the, the growth on an absolute basis, quarter on quarter, does seem to be sort of um, slowing a bit. Um, can you maybe just talk about how the, the real-world, uh, you know, duration of use has maybe um, evolved and if that's sort of in line with what you saw in the studies, in the, in the pivotal studies? Thank you.
2: Thanks, Carter. Right over to Joanna, please.
6: Sure,
3: Carter. Thanks for the question. Um, just a couple of things. One is um, the footprint, the geographic footprint that we've just initiated, and in that that ramp up and the tripling. Um, it has really maybe three objectives. One is to um, further support our initial launches of both metastatic TNBC as well as bladder. So that's definitely number one, and that is the here and now. Um, the potential to support um, a potential indication in HR positive which is what you were referring to. And the third one is also setting up for the future success of our total oncology portfolio. So um, assuming positive data, of course, is what we've decided to go for, um, but having said that, um, even if that didn't play out, this is the right team for the future for Gilead Oncology. Um, So that was the first part of your question the the second part of your question about the growth flowing, I actually think we're quite pleased, actually, as we got into Q4. What we've seen is um, the share really drive up post-NCCN breast guidelines update in September. And so we had good data point as share. The last data point we have is October, and that's the one in four that you heard me talk about earlier. And so that's doubling from where we were in April. So we were at about half of that share in second line. And now we're at about 24 25% share in second line. So, real nice growth on that front and definitely more to come. I think there's an incredible opportunity for Trodelvy in this patient setting, especially with the high medical need and the incredible OAS data that we have with Trodelvy. So, more to come on that.
2: Terrific. Thank you so much. Carter, we can take one last question, everybody. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Our last question comes from the line of Matthew Harrison from Morgan Stanley. Your line is now open.
5: Um, Great. Good evening. Thanks for fitting me in. Uh, Just one clarification and one question. So first, um, Merdad, can you just clarify, it was unclear to me from your comments whether the FDA had asked for the OS data, and that's why you were including this interim now uh, for the filing, or if that had been your plan all along, so if you could just clarify, that would be great. And then second, any comments you can make specifically around um, the stocking tailwind as well as the gross-to-net tailwind that,
2: that you had from HIV in the fourth quarter? Thanks. Thanks a lot, Matthew. Good. Dad is enjoying
4: yeah, very quickly, I think as I mentioned, we, we did upsize a study last year for OS because we've always believed, especially in HR positive, that having OS data are going to be important to support a file. It's not the primary endpoint, um, and we think it's going to be important uh, supportive data to go. So um, that didn't really have much to do with this confluence of events here. Um, it's It's A fortuitous event in terms of timing, uh, here that will support our data. So hopefully that answers. The FDA did not ask for it. The FDA didn't specifically ask us for it. No, it's, it's always, we were always going to take a look at OS, uh, with the first PFS, uh, data cut. At this point, in order, instead of doing a a look and then an interim, we're just going to do the PFS and the interim at the same time.
3: Thanks, Matthew. And Matthew, the second part of your question around the Q4 piece of the puzzle. So as you well know, right, as you go into Q4, you usually have a bit of a seasonal inventory build and sub-channel play. And then, of course, that bleeds out in Q1. So that's one piece of the puzzle. In Q1, the other difference is, of course, you increase your co-pay support, your donut hole coverage, um, and and so all those pieces, and your payer mix kind of changes in your first quarter. Having said that, in addition to that, um, there was um, some – some favorability in Q4 of twenty twenty one um from a gross to net standpoint which which will then create an even bigger kind of decline in Q one and that's what we were referring to. So so hopefully that helps a little bit. It's a one time thing in Q four. Um and it's just more around the comparison versus um Q one over Q four as we as we get through the first quarter. And that's what I was trying to signal.
2: Great, Matthew, and uh, just want to, before I turn it over to Jackie, thank all of you for joining from our perspective. We are really excited about the build that we've had at Gilead over the past two years and the team and the people that we have on board. We've got a lot to uh, to do this year, and we're really teed up for a good, strong year and a strong decade ahead with this portfolio. With that, Jackie, over to you, please.
1: Thank you, Dan, and thanks to our operator, uh, Gigi, uh, for your help today, um, and indeed to all of you for joining us. We appreciate your continued interest in Gilead and hope that you can join us for our our, uh, virology deep dive scheduled for Thursday, the 17th
3: of February. Thank you.
0: This concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.